Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Episode 2. Is this the show? 3, 2, 1, Mark. Mark. <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> I'll be able to find it because there will be enough silence in there. It will be all right. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, my, my when I got up this morning, got started down in my driveway taking my daughter to school and then suddenly had my whole dash lit up all the lights on it i was like what the hell is going on with my car the back tire was completely flat so i spent this morning pulled over in the mud trying to jack my car up with a screw jack worst invention ever you should have pulled over not in the mud well i didn't have yeah, a choice terrible. it was a bad <laughs> choice of all the places to pull over that's probably the worst place to pull over i had no choice <laughs> well you got it though it's everything's okay now yeah, we're good now. I ran my car over. This is the reason I was late to have them patch the tire. And... Of course. Well, hi, everyone. Hello. We're all here. Hello. This is good. And Anna's here. Yeah. Hey. So the biggest piece, is this the show? We're in the show now? Yes, we're in the show now. I thought we were before this. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. I'm just making sure that we're in the show now. <laughs> So, first of all, I just want to say thanks to everyone who listened. A surprising number of people listened, so thanks for that. And the biggest piece of feedback that we got is that we didn't actually introduce any of ourselves. And I will go ahead and say that the real excuse was because we weren't all here, and that would have been rude. The (laughs) actual excuse is, I forgot. I don't know about you. (laughs) I just assume everybody knows who I am, right? Yeah, see, I'm not uh, I'm not at that level of arrogant yet. I, <laughs> I think that's a safe assumption, Amos. Totally safe assumption. Well, when you have a name like Amos, sometimes just if people meet you, they're like, <laughs> your name is what? Yeah, it's an M, not an N. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> oh my god. Alright, well so do you wanna you wanna you wanna start, Amos? Yeah, do you wanna start? Uh, I guess. I don't know. I'm Amos. I did a podcast called The Sagile Life for a really long time. Audacity is stupid. I think it tries to up my recording volume based on how loud I'm talking. Anyway, so I did This Agile Life for about five years. I do freelance consulting, love Elixir for the last year. I've been doing Elixir full time on embedded devices using nerfs. You have to pick someone next. You have to. You... Oh, is this like. Is this is this popcorn? Chris, you go. Anna picked for us. She's the leader. <laughs> She's got places to be. <laughs> She's awesome. Yeah, I'm Chris Keithley. Uh, I've been hanging around the Elixir community for a while now. Uh, I've done a couple of talks and things, those sorts of things. I help maintain a browser testing library called Wallaby. And more recently, I've been working on a lot of distributed system stuff, including building Raft and just some other things like that. It's rad. Anna, I think by process of elimination, <laughs> you're the last one, so you have to go. It's my turn. Yeah, I'm Anna. I'm a developer at a consulting shop called Carbon5. I've been doing Elixir for a couple of years. I started Elixir Bridge. We try and put on workshops, free workshops for underrepresented folks in tech to learn Elixir and Phoenix. It's been a lot of fun. Very recently gave a talk about building a blockchain in Elixir. Oh yeah, I've done some speaking. I've done some speaking. Yeah, I was talking a little bit about building a blockchain in Elixir. And er- Erlang Factory, now Codebeam. I don't know what the name is anymore. It's Codebeam, right? <laughs> yeah. I keep changing it. Yeah, it's Codebeam now. I'm going to Stockholm, actually, to give it one more time. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Fun. Man, 
I need I need to start applying for overseas conferences. It's it's a lot of fun. So that's actually where we all started talking about making the podcast. It was a l- little bit at Elixir Days. So I met Chris at Elixir Days what two years ago? Yeah, back in Florida. Yeah, and then and then this year I met Anna, and who gave a fantastic talk. You say it's about blockchain. I say it's about gen servers, but we. we... I mean, it's kind of both. Kind of both. It was fantastic. I enjoyed it. Almost as fantastic as you creating lightning on stage. That was rad. Well, when you have no real content, you got to do something crazy. <laughs> I don't know. You did bring a bandograph generator on stage and make <laughs> lightning. That <laughs> feels like content. Right. I loved it. Like, my whole talk was just gratuitous BS so that I could make lightning. I really <laughs> wanted to shock somebody and it didn't quite work out for me. The talk was a vehicle for making lightning on stage. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's a good that's a good excuse. No, totally. I'll take it. <laughs> we did have some pieces of feedback that I wanted to get to before we go into any sort of main topic here that we got after the first show came out. Just they reached out to me and, and let me know the things, some of the things that we got wrong and just also helped to provide a little more context for stuff. So first of all, it's not Ecto's fault that your SQLite issue, the SQLite that your app is crashing when it can't talk to SQLite fast enough. I guess it's apparently because the SQLite 3 driver doesn't actually support uh, async connect. And when I say driver, I don't actually know if that means that the Elixir driver can't do that or if there's some sort of underlying reason that that's happening. But that's the root cause. I'm not sure that SQLite can do anything async. Right. That was actually kind of one thing I was wondering is I don't know where the root of the problem is or if it's like fixable in Elixir land or not. But that is that's where that's at. Yeah, I'm not sure either. We we attempted to fix it with adding a timeout of infinity. <laughs> <laughs> the best timeout. <laughs> right. Did that work? Well, it's working. Okay. I don't know for how long, you know. <laughs> we'll see. I kind of fought against it, but at the same time, if it's not working, our system might as well shut down the whole thing. And also, they're like, well, what if we pick something arbitrary? You know, if you pick 30 seconds then somebody's going to have something that takes 31 seconds and they're going to be like, well, why can't we just make it 31? I like five years. I pick five years as my timeouts because if it takes, you know, five years is right at the maximum of time. I'm willing to wait for this for this <laughs> database to come up. <laughs> it sounds totally reasonable, Chris. So yeah, so that that's that. Yeah, that was great feedback. And I went and talked to the person you got that feedback from. I'm not sure we should say who it was, but maybe we should. I did already. Did we compromise his... Is security? Yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. I thought I did. It was Jose. He he let us know that we were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and we appreciate it a lot, actually. That, that sounds ridiculous, but no, I'm not trying to ping on Jose. That was amazing that he reached out and let us know. The other thing he, he informed us about is that the core team is working on dialyzer improvements, specifically, I guess, around, around messaging and making sure that the errors look nice and stuff. But it's probably... It's a bit trickier than I had originally thought, and I think it's even maybe even trickier than anybody really thought. So they have to change stuff in OTP to make it happen, but it is on their to-do list of things with no... I mean, I don't think there was a specified release date or what version it'll be in, but it's something that they're definitely working on. So that was cool to hear too, because I think that will be really beneficial to the community. So it's cool to hear that they're working on that. Yeah, that is really cool. Do you, any ideas when? Did he mention when that's going to happen? No, but based on the, the extent of the work like what he was kind of describing would have to happen 
I suspect it's it's not even tied to Elixir at that point because it's mm-hmm. they have to change stuff in OTP to make okay. it happen. So it's good. They're going to be beholden to that, if nothing else, even once the, the work is done. That makes sense. So it'll probably be a bit, but the fact that it's happening at all is pretty rad. No, it's totally rad. Yeah. So if, if those things are interesting to people and they want to get involved, I'm sure they would love contributors <laughs> to help out with that effort. Totally. So should we dive into our main topic for today? Yeah, let's do it. Sounds good. I think last time we said we wanted to talk a little bit about property testing. Oh, that's... That shouldn't take us very long. It's not like a complex topic or anything. No, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) People don't have feelings, right? Yeah. (laughs) There's not just a multitude of papers that have been written on the subject. Uh No, it's good. It's good. Well, what what brought up, I wasn't here last week, uh, what brought up property testing or what drove you to that part of the conversation? I think we were talking about testing in relation to the library guidelines. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. And it kind of naturally came out of that just because, well, I mean, it's one of the things I like to bring up a lot. And because there is some movement in the community towards that right now, I think it just sort of it came up. I don't quite remember. When we bring up testing, I think that I'm I'm kind of into it, too. And so uh, and I know Chris is. So I just immediately and, and Chris, too, it's like, hey, let's talk about property testing. Oh, that's rad. I, I'm trying to learn more and Chris knows more than I do. So I'll bring it up anytime I can when he's around. So what has y'all's experience been with property testing so far? Anna? Yeah, um, I was going to say Amos, but yeah. I've only actually, I'm curious to learn more. I've only done a little bit of it. Um, it's been really positive. Like the stuff that I have done has been really helpful, but I have currently have somewhat limited experience. Um, I've only done a little bit on personal projects that I've worked on. So I'm curious to hear what, your thoughts are about it. I think I've experimented more with it than actually used it on production systems, mm-hmm. but I have used it on a few. Uh, used it for very basic properties, like like a single function that you would pass stuff into, and I've also used it to generate a set of commands and and run a full system through a random random ish set of commands, a logical ordered set of commands. And actually found some bugs with it that way. It was it was pretty neat. I didn't go as far as to use prop check and preconditions and postconditions, which made my test very complicated. And I uh, actually used property testing on the lightning sensor. Oh, that's awesome. And and got feedback from Chris on that, which was kind of fantastic. Oh, yeah. What did Chris say? Amos, you suck at property <laughs> testing. You should give up. This this is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, I I would say he kind of pushed towards like the precondition postcondition part uh-huh. of the command. He said to generate the uh, what should be the output of a command along with the command. Oh, I think you had mentioned that. Yeah. So the input to the system already has the assertion of what the output should be because I my test had like a bunch of ifs. It said like if the last command was this, then this is what you should assert. It cleaned up the test quite a bit. Although one of the things that's been tough for me sometimes is reading some property tests when they're built that way i think it i don't know if that's just i need more time they read very differently from a traditional unit test or even integration tests mm-hmm. i guess before we go too much farther we should define a little bit about how property testing works just in case totally. there's people who who aren't familiar so with property testing what you what you're really doing is your it's a combination of a bunch of a bunch of techniques. Let's say you have like an addition function 
and you want to prove the addition works for all numbers. You could do that by simply writing a bunch of examples, which is typically what we would do in uh, like unit testing. But a more convenient way to do that and a more powerful way to do that and really just a more robust way to do that is to generate numbers, just random numbers, all numbers, and then add them together and then, and then check their output. But the problem when you do that <clears throat> is that because you don't know what numbers you're going to get when you generate them, uh, you can't make an assertion that is like, if I add two and two together, I get four because you don't know that you have two and two. So you don't know the outcome yet. So instead, what you have to do is you have to use uh, what we would call properties about addition and assert that those are valid. So for addition, it would be things like uh, it's commutative. So I can add, let's say I needed to add two and three together. Well, I can add two and three and then I can add three and two and they both give me the same answer. So I can validate that that's a property that holds and I don't need to know the outcome in order to validate that property. And you could do the same thing, for, uh, the identity property, which is like if I add two and zero. If I add anything to zero, I get the original back. And that's a property about addition. So you would write that as a property. And there's other properties for addition. But once you wrote these pretty straightforward, simple tests for each of them, you've proven that addition works because it follows these sort of mathematical properties. So the cool thing, the, the, the different technologies that come together are the generation of data so, you know, you need to generate all numbers or you need to generate strings and you need to, in, you know, Elixir, you need to generate atoms or maps or lists or whatever. And you have the property itself, which is effectively the test. And then you have this third piece of technology that um, sometimes gets, gets forgotten, but it's the true magic of, or it's one of the pieces of magic of property testing, which is shrinking. The, what the shrinker does is when it does find a property or like what, rather when it finds a, a set of data that invalidates a property. So basically when your test fails, it mm -hmm. will take that data and shrink it to the smallest possible test case. So then you can just say like, oh, look, my addition didn't work for one and zero. Oh, I wonder why that is. And then you can go and, and look at your actual implementation. So that's kind of property testing in a nutshell. And what to what you were saying, Amos, like, you, had, you needed to generate data. And if I remember correctly, the problem that you were solving was like, I have this binary protocol and I want to validate that I'm parsing and and encoding correctly. Or something. It was something along those lines, right? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if I was really going to test it. It would be like two to the 64th tests or something <laughs> like that before I could actually test every little bit of the binary. Right. And so instead what you did is you generated all the data that you need using a handful of generators. And then based on what you generated, you were able to check its outcome. And right. And in like a handful of tests or one test or whatever. Now, one of the things that you suggested that, that I, I didn't take advantage of too is so like addition has some pretty simple properties, right? And they're pretty straightforward. And even, even the re the reducing process there isn't much, but I, I don't know why that was a tangent. Um, <laughs> the, the the big thing that you had suggested, but I, I, I ended up not doing was uh, it's I had a, a decoder mm -hmm. and you said write the encoder too because a good property is a symmetric property where if you decode something, you encode it, it should equal the original mm -hmm. or encode something, then decode it, it should equal the, the decoded version, uh, which is a great property. 
I think that symmetric properties also need to be used with other properties because otherwise I could just have them both return hard-coded things and it's not really testing anything. Yeah, for sure. I Yeah, I mean, I think with everything, you have to layer this stuff together in a way that helps you build a robust system. When it comes to testing, I don't want to be an advocate for like throw away all your example-based tests. Those are really useful. A lot of times if you're checking error values, you're checking like specific things that might happen, you still want those things. Um, or you might want other properties. You know, you need that other stuff in order to build resilience and reliability around your system or around your function or whatever it is that you're mm-hmm. trying to test. Uh, you need that sort of like multi-layered approach to really make sure that you're handling all these different edge cases. Properties are nice because they're big. Like you can, you can, mm-hmm. in the sense that you can handle, like you can, you can start to test a lot of things. But, you know, when it comes down to sort of practical considerations like you want it to shrink really well and you want it to generate failures on a regular basis if that's the case you actually end up trying to find properties that are a little tighter you know you try not to make your properties too big you try to like kind of hone in a little bit more just because then you're you can kind of accommodate these real world considerations chris for people who are listening maybe less familiar with as we're talking about property-based testing can you give maybe an example of like something that's a little bit more honed in as far as a property versus something that is probably a little bit more expensive or is it really case dependent? So it's hard to come up with on the fly. Yeah. I mean, that's the really, I think this is what makes, you know, explaining property testing a lot of times and explaining the benefits of it is a little bit like explaining monads. (laughs) (laughs) You can say why these things are good, but it's not, it's, it's so hard to put it into practice because uh, it is so specifically with property testing, it's so case sensitive, you know, like about the, the thing that you're actually working on. Um, and it's really hard. Like the math, the addition thing is cheating in so many ways, because like you may not know what those properties are, but you know that they exist and you can go on Wikipedia and you can find out what they are. Um, you don't have that a lot of times for for other problems. I think like where you see it the most is if you're if you've got a data structure and you know you're implementing a certain type of data structure, well, that data structure does have properties, and you can look up what those properties would be. And you can start to uh, build, you know, you, you can start to use those to guide your tests. And that's a really good way to hone in. So in in building properties and coming up with them, sometimes it's, it. this might go with the narrowing it down thing, is it, uh, if you were going to build a min that takes in a, a list of integers and finds the smallest one. Like people are like, well, the property is it's the smallest one in the list. Well, that is kind of what you're after. So it, it really gets hard. So you might have to take, take a step back and think about really uh, what you want and maybe compare it to the input too. So maybe you say uh, the smallest item is the one that is, less than or equal to anything that's already in the list. But that's that's still not enough because it could be the smallest one in the list minus one would still fit that property. So then you also have to say it is it is equal to something that is in the list. So it has to be in the list, but it's also the smaller than everything else in the list. Right. And, you know, a property for that could be like it returns one thing or and because that actually already forces you to that's going to already force you to 
think through the rest of your design. And it's going to find an edge case immediately, which is what happens when the list is empty. And what do you want to do when the list is empty? Like, because you can't return one if the list is empty. And that's the very first thing that your property is going to, that pro- your property test is going to, is going to determine. Like it's going to find that failure. And then now that's up to you to determine like what you do about that. And, you know, maybe the right answer is to return nil, or maybe it's to return an error. Like it totally depends on the guarantees of your, uh, of your function at that point. I mean, I think that was like a, a real problem that was in Elixir at one point. Like there was, there was something, might not have been men, but there was something uh, like that, that changed semantics a couple of times because they didn't know what the right quote unquote right thing was to return. And, and sometimes the right answer is to change the data that you're generating to put into it too. Um, because maybe you find out that your generated space of data coming in isn't even valid to come in. Well, and you said it might be to raise an exception for that. Right. Yeah. You might raise an exception. I mean, that's another thing I would say too about, about properties is like you do want uh, some errors. Like you want to throw bad data at it and make sure that for this class of bad data, it's going to raise an exception or it's going to, you know, like if you throw strings, let's say at the min function, what happens? Well, what it ought to do is throw an exception. So you or you know, maybe, maybe that's the right thing to do. So when you do that, you want to still assert that like, Hey, we always get this exception for all this garbage data. And you can write a property that generates just, you know, things that aren't in your valid data set. And we'll still do that. Um, are you, are y'all mostly using, um, uh, state or, uh, sorry. Um, Stream data when you're playing with this stuff? Thus far, yeah. Uh, you stream data and just last night was trying out prop check because I've been following and reading all the prop check stuff and it, I think it, it might need some more documentation uh, and I'm trying to figure out how it works so that maybe I can give some documentation back. Um, but I, I wrote a, a small test in it last night. So that was it was a lot of fun. For some of the folks listening, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what PropCheck is? So there's uh, propertesting.com is where I found out about it. And there's Proper and then there's PropCheck. And PropCheck, from what I gather, is like the Elixir version of of Proper. And Proper is from Fred Herbert, right? Proper the library? Yeah. Uh, no, he, he uses it really heavily, um, and he's worked on it, but actually, so, so proper is a tool that came out of, uh, out of Costas's lab, uh, same guy who worked on dialyzer and a bunch of other like Erlang tools. Um, but that's, that's, I think like he and, you know, his, whatever other kind of postdocs and other graduate students he's got, um, they, they're mostly working on, they're the ones who are maintaining and still, and still doing active research, uh, with proper. And so that's that's where that comes from. Uh, proper is an Erlang library. Um, prop check is the Elixir wrap around it. And so a lot of times the documentation in prop check is pretty lacking, but it's because it kind of assumes that you're going to go read the proper documentation and uh, use that and use and, and you know kind of get your information from there. There are docs. Like I don't want to you know say that there's not there's not docs, but there's no sort of like if you don't know anything about it it's really hard to dive in and just use it because you know there's no there's no guidelines on here's how you write property tests at all so if you're just getting started it's a harder one to get started on that said 
Proper is a pretty, pretty robust tool and it has a bunch of features in it that is really nice. And in fact, I have kind of gone back to using Proper a lot more these days. Uh, I was using Stream Data uh, and still do use Stream Data. Like we have Stream Data in you know, our production uh, test suites for some of our services and stuff like that. Um, we still really like and enjoy using Stream Data, um, but there are certain features in Proper that that are really really attractive and just streamed it it just currently doesn't have um they're being worked on or at least being discussed but right now they don't they don't have them so proper and prop check have the command tests right like the stateful testing yeah and that's really the the big reason why i keep continue to use proper and honestly i would even say that where property testing really comes into its own is model checking and that's sort of stateful stateful checking and the way that that works is <clears throat> you were kind of alluding to this earlier amos but the way that that works is you build a state machine um, it's just a statement a, a model of the way that you want your system or some part of your system to work and you build sort of like the idealized version of that so um, you know hey when I get these commands, I transition from this state to this state, and this should be the outcome of that. And now my current state should be this instead. And you build a sort of idealized perfect world model of that. And the way that you transition states is you generate commands. So your generators just based on the previous state that you're in can generate new commands. And those commands can be valid state transitions. They can be you know, they can cause errors. They could, you know, do whatever you want them to do. Like for instance, we, we use this in our, the raft stuff I've been working on and we actually kill pro different processes and we shut down networks and stuff based on these commands. Um, and then we assert that like these outcomes happen. So you generate this big list of commands. It uses the model to do that. And then once it has the big list of commands, it actually runs it against your real system. And after every command, you check your idealized state versus the real world. And you say, does the thing that I thought should happen match against the real world? And if it doesn't, you know, you get an error and then, you know, the magic of shrinking kicks back in and actually shrinks down the command list until you end up with, you know, the three or four or however many commands that it takes to execute this problem. And uh, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's like, it's such an amazing tool once you have that because it adds this just giant layer of robustness over over what you're working on. That said, it's non-trivial to write command tests. <laughs> like it is it's hard. And, you know, I, I want to say that like our the big kind of the big high level system test around raft is something like 400 lines of code. Like it's a lot. It's a big model. Like it's a it's a big thing. That's the the thing that has been the hardest for me when jumping into that is coming up with a model that isn't rewriting the actual system that I'm testing. And, and I, I think really coming up with the pre and post conditions first often helped me to go back and write a model, even though I've done very little of this. So this is is just trial and error at very small level, but writing pre and post conditions for each command really helped me flush out what I need my model to do and what I need it to be compared to the real system. 
So I totally agree with you. Like having those preconditions and postconditions are basically required. Like you, you almost every command you'll have uh, almost always has a precondition and a postcondition. And the postcondition is where you actually do the checking to, to check that your idealized state matches the new state. And the precondition is used for shrinking because the way that shrinking works is once you have this big list of commands, it just starts removing commands from the list. And because of that, you can, it could attempt to execute commands that are no longer in like a valid sequence. So before when you generated them, it was all perfect. Like everything you, it was based on the state, on the idealized state that you were in. It only generated the commands that were valid in that state, et cetera, et cetera. But once it starts removing them, all bets are off. So you end up having to put real preconditions around it in order to say like, you can only call this in this state. Right. So like if you are, if you're writing a system that has login, your failing test might say log in, log out, log in. And so when it's shrinking, it, it it's going to make sure that it can't do log in, log in. Because the precondition for log in would be I'm not logged in. Exactly, exactly. And you end up having to put a bunch of those preconditions in there um, a lot more than you think just to get the tests to not fail because of precondition issues. <laughs> like, you know, you have to you have to have a lot more guards around than you think. That said, like once you've put the effort into doing that, I mean, it really, really, you start to find so many things, so many, so many real problems, because at the end of the day, like testing functions is good. And, you know, testing encoders and decoders is good. Testing, you know, stateless testing is useful, but most of what we do involves some state, you know, I mean, that's a big part of why we use Elixir, right? Is it's, it makes it easy to, to sort of manage state and different processes and processes can talk to each other and all that kind of stuff. So once you have all that, it, you know, you need these sort of higher level system tests to really find the, the really, really gross edge cases around it all. And it'll find weird stuff that you never expected. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it'll just, it'll just generate things like this, that you would never ever think to do on your own. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's magical in that way. That's awesome. <clears throat> so it's worth pointing out that um, right now stream data doesn't support stateful generators. Um, and that's really the, the big thing that you need. You need the, to the ability to generate. Um, you need to, the ability to generate things based on previous state and stream data sort of by its nature as like, you know, a, a stream. <clears throat> um, it doesn't, doesn't support that yet. Um, so that's one of the reasons I've been using proper more, but there is an ongoing discussion um, in an issue on the stream data uh, uh, repo. We've talked about it a bunch in IRC and other places. So um, in order to add stateful generation and what an API for that would look like in stream data and how can we best provide that to the community and what sort of things do we have to do to what, what sort of things do we have to change to make it work, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it, we've talked a lot about like, do we want to adopt the, the library or the, the, sorry, the API uh, design from proper and prop check and that kind of stuff? Or do we think we can improve this? So that's an ongoing discussion and I'm pretty hopeful that that's going to end up, you know, in a good place. Um, especially since like stream data seems like it's poised to be, to be added to the core language or like at least the, at least the X unit. Um, I think that would be a really, really beneficial thing to have in the community and would help, you know, show people who are new to this 
how to go about doing it. Plus, it's, you know, the, the real big issue with proper and the thing that people, a lot of people get hung up or at least scared about is that it's GPL licensed. Um, and so that can be, you know, I am not a lawyer. I am not <laughs> here to tell you. Like, I know people use it. I know, I know that there's, I know people use it for production systems. Like, you know, check with your local lawyer <laughs> that is, that is on the clock. <laughs> uh, if, if you can do that, I don't know. I'm not here to tell you one way or the other, but. But that's a good thing for people to keep in mind, right? Like, right. Well, and it's also one of the reasons why it wasn't ever considered for Elixir itself, because if you want to distribute it with Elixir, then Elixir's, Elixir has to, you know, the licensing for Elixir has to change, which is a big reason why, I, I, as far as I understand, that's a big reason why they built their own. And I think that makes total sense. There was somebody I was talking to, I can't remember who, that so they were using it, but they kept their tests in a completely separate repo because they were worried about <laughs> licensing. Yes. Yeah. That's a thing. That's, that's real. definitely a thing. <laughs> that's real. Uh, you, you know, there's, I think somebody, again, not a lawyer, don't at me. Uh, I, there's, somebody was telling me that it's fine as long as you don't ship your test code to production. And, you know, if you're using releases in Elixir, you wouldn't be doing that. But if you're deploying with Git or something, then you are. So, uh, there's a whole, you know, be careful, you know, watch, watch what you're doing. Um, but yeah, so the, that would then be another really great reason why, uh, you know, for the inclusion of, uh, stateful checking inside of stream data as well. Now, should we talk to the rich audience too and tell them about their the one library that we haven't talked about yet, and that's Quick Check? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. So that's the thing is Quick Check is the best. Like, like I don't think anybody's gonna debate that. Like, Quick Check is just the best. If and if you need the the most robust, most reliable um, tool out there for this kind of stuff. Just pay for quick check. It's not an unreasonable amount for a company to pay for, but it's I, I would say it's like pretty far outside the reach of most individuals. Do you remember what it the the licensing is? Is it per seat? It's yeah, I think it's like per seat and it's it's many thousands of dollars. So like right. you know, like it's it's totally something that a company would could and should a hundred percent pay for. Like I think I honestly think it's worth that. Um they they'll help you write tests too, right? Yeah. Somebody was saying like you can get you can call them up and be like, hey, I got a license for this, and uh, I don't know how to test this thing at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And and they'll they'll help you out. At least that's what I've been told. I I've never been able to. I've never put the money up for Quick Check. So have have you used it, Chris? No, I've never. I know I don't have a license for it. Um... You know, and, and part of it's because the stuff that I would want to use it for is largely my, a lot of my open source things and some work stuff, but like, I, you know, I don't know what the, I don't, I feel bad asking a company to like pick that up for me to some degree. You know, if we can get anybody from quick check to listen, if they'll give us three licenses <laughs> for quick check, we promise to do a whole episode on how amazing it is. I'm I'm, I'm here to tell you right now. It's, it's awesome. It's, it's. I mean, they have. I, no, I mean, the thing that was cool is they they also release like all their stuff as paper. You know, a lot of the, the really interesting stuff they write papers about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll try to link all the different papers uh, in the show notes if you want to go check those out. But they're great and they're written in a really readable way. They make a lot of sense. And frankly, like, I they they helped me understand what was happening uh, under the core of all this, which gave me a bunch of insight into why it was useful. Um, but yeah, I mean, they have stuff. 
in you know quick check pro or whatever it's called like they have their own runtime scheduler that helps you find race conditions like they have all kinds of really 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 smart engineering going into that thing um and yeah if you if if that's what you need you should just spend the money uh if you can you know if you have the means i highly recommend it and and they they also put out some good conference talks if you're not the kind of person who likes to read papers so yeah so that's the that's the big one you know i think most people will be really well served if if what you well i'll say this if if what you want to do is just start getting into this stuff um i think stream data is the most approachable just because it's it's going to look the most like an elixir library because it's not beholden to sort of a different api or any of that kind of stuff um, if you want to do the stateful stuff right now your your option is proper although i think you know that might change in the future but for right now that's where we're at um and it's yeah i think all these tools you you really are really going to you're going to be really well served picking up any one of these and playing around with it because they're really really useful i mean it just makes when you go back to just normal unit testing you just feel like all your power has been stripped away from you <laughs> like no, that's fair that makes sense so now that chris and i have talked way too much how about you anna have you have you done uh any of any property testing no, I mean, this is why it was interesting for me to listen, like what Chris kind of alluded to. Most of the stuff I've done has really just been with stream data um, and, you know, mostly function testing, like generating random data. Um, so hearing you all talk about proper, um, I, I've, I've looked into it a little bit. I haven't used it yet, but it does sound really interesting. Um, and so I am actually excited about digging into it a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting hearing your perspective because my perspective is a little bit limited on this particular subject. Well, I think it's it's also, it's one of those things that depending on the kind of work that you're doing and depending on like what the kind of, you know, what you're working with, the, it's the specific problem you're working on, um, it may not warrant doing property tests all the time. Like if you're trying to discover an API and if you're trying to, you know, get something out the door and, and in order to test it, in order to like get in front of a customer or in order to, you know, really go through, run through an API or something like that. Um, it's a lot of extra work to write property tests and it may not be worth it because the property tests sort of by, once you add enough of them, especially if you go into this like stateful model checking stuff, there's a non-trivial amount of code there. And, you know, you don't necessarily even want to bake that API in yet. You're not, maybe not be, be ready to bake that API in yet. And so, I don't know it's that it's always worth just like rushing into. There are definitely places, you know, where you'll see, oh, this would be a really good place to, to property test something. And then you can add that layer of, of robustness. But, you know, I don't think it's bad to not convert, you know, all of a sudden everything that you do into a property test. <laughs> you know, it's really excessive. Like when is, that's a good question. Like when does that become appropriate, right? Because if you're test driving things, right? And you're trying to like figure out how something's formatted or like the you know, how your API is going to look. Um, and given that there is some overhead to creating property tests, um, especially when you're dealing with like state, at what point does it feel appropriate? So what I do is uh, I, I still unit test TDD things. Uh, and, and when you get far enough into that, you start to have an understanding of, oh, here's here's how I think this thing behaves. Here's the what I believe the inputs can possibly be. So I know now know how to generate those. 
I can start to look at what I think the output should be and then let the property tests right then start to write property tests based on the assumptions that you have so far and let let that property test then guide out the edge cases that maybe you missed with your example testing uh, or or if you're replacing another system I just hop in with property tests and use the other system as your model <laughs> Just call out to the other system for for and say that your new one has to match the same output. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. I think a lot of it just really comes down to intuition, um, and you know, having done it a- enough times to know like what the cost trade offs are going to be. Um, you know, you kind of can't go wrong with like the rule of three. Like once you have like three big tests that are that are testing different inputs and trying to like check their outputs and all that kind of stuff. That's a really good time to sort of evaluate like, Oh, maybe I could like consolidate all this down into one thing. You know, other great places are like, if, if you have a well-defined set of state that could be, or sorry, set of data that could be passed into a function, then, you know, that's a really good time to do that as well. And it's, and honestly, I think those, those times are less frequent than we think. Like a lot of times it's like, Oh, I'm going to pass this very specific, like struct in here i'm going to pass this very specific type of data but if you do have a function that's like i need to take inputs zero through 255 because i'm building an rgb hex converter or something like that then that's a really good time to sort of reach for these for these other tools totally that makes sense and i guess as you play with like, like you said it's intuition so as you play with it more right you get a better sense of when and how to test things. And if you're already using it to generate data for a test, you, it's it's not a big hop to a property. I mean, your test really probably is some kind of property-ish thing that you're asserting anyway. No, that makes sense. The other really cool thing that I wanted to, to throw out there about the benefits of having these generators is that once you have them, you can use them for anything. Like, especially with stream data, it's just, it's just streams. It's just literally streams of data. It's very incredibly well-named. And now if you just want to generate fake data, whether you're in IEX or, or you want to like throw fake data into your database in order to like do development work, well, now you have this, this infinite stream of fake things and you can reuse them for all those purposes too. There's no reason, I mean, the real code, right? There's no reason you can't use those. And we do that a bunch. We use them seeding our te- like our database with fake data and trying stuff out. So there's all, there's like, a lot of use cases for those um, generators once you have them. So put your generators in a place where you can get to them from other test files. Yeah. It's yeah. a good idea. Just start that way. That's a good idea. Is there anything else anybody wants to, to throw out there about property testing? I think we covered a lot of ground here. I do notice when property testing gets brought up, there are often a lot of questions of how is that different than fuzzing? So I, I think it would be good to to at least address that my understanding of fuzzing is less than my understanding of property testing but from what i get of it is fuzzing is just throwing output at something and kind of seeing what happens maybe the the property part and the shrinking part really aren't as heavily pushed at i'm not sure what do you guys think you guys either one done fuzzing i i don't well i'll say i've never done fuzzing like uh, in any sort of anger um, I, I think for me, the big difference is a lot of times in property testing, you're, you're explicitly passing real data. Like you're, you're passing data that you know is meaningful 
in some way, whether you might be throwing data that's quote unquote bad. Like for instance, with your, with addition, if you throw strings into it, you know, what's supposed to happen? Well, what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to throw an exception. So for that, the, for the property of when I get data, I don't understand, I should throw an exception. Bad data is, is in the correct like set of data that you, that you care about. And I feel like that's one of the big differences is you're throwing, you're not throwing garbage at it. You're throwing data that you expect to like cause an outcome. And the other big thing for me is the, is the shrinking aspect of it. Like it, it feels really, really focused when I can sort of say like, all right, well, I expected addition to work with one and zero, but it doesn't. And I only discovered that because, you know, my shrinking like was able to collapse all of the big values that I had and then say, well, the, the base case of this is one and zero and that'll fail it every time. And I think the shrinking is really, and, and sort of those like pretty focused properties is the big difference between uh, property testing and fuzzing. Although, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of simil- similarities as well. I've never done fuzzing as testing, but I was just been told that it's more about finding when your system will crash and then looking at that and saying, well, is that what we should have done or or what? I think the Venn diagrams between those two things are pretty close together. And a lot of what you're, what, what makes them unique is just what you do with the outcomes of them. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, property testing, like I said, is a little more focused. Right. But it seems like they're achieving, they're trying to achieve similar things, right? Property testing does it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So that's all cool. I had. Yeah, that's cool. I've I've no, I've said cool. I've said all the words that I have to say. Those are a lot of words. About property testing. So many words. That's all you have to say about property testing? Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that we'd ever get to the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, is if we keep going, uh, I'm gonna loop back around on myself like like a like a snake eating its own tail. <laughs> if you eat yourself do you disappear or get twice as big? It's called the, it's called the Ouroboros. <laughs> All right, I think we found our, our our stopping point. Oh man! Yeah, this is all. This is like what this is like. What happens when you turn a bag of holding inside out? <laughs> like what? Like what happens when you turn a bag of holding inside out? Just destroy oh, the universe? Man. You know what? What happened? What's going on? Uh, I think that we've reached ultimate nerd there. Agreed. Agreed. And and I and I know that everybody has stuff to do today, yeah. except for me. All right. Final thoughts before we before we button this up. Uh, I think it's this was awesome. I also think it's awesome that there's this much discussion within the community about testing, and that it's continuing to grow. And people do think it's really important. I think that says something about the community and about the language. So that's awesome. I just encourage everybody to try property testing, play with it, go write a minimum list function and use properties to test it. Maybe to start, it's pretty easy. Or some addition, right? And sorry if we have lots of clipping on my audio because Audacity keeps automatically turning up my volume. So we'll try to fix <laughs> we'll try to fix that for next time if it's bad this time. We're we're a work in progress here. Work in progress. Yeah. Yep. We always will be a work in progress. <laughs> All right. Cool, y'all. Have a good day, guys. See y'all later. Bye. You too. Bye.